As we come to chapter 3, I want us to get through at least tonight the first four verses. <laughs> I, I tried to, I endeavoured to, 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 to do more than that, but um, I, I guess if we're going to do these four verses justice, we'll need to take them um, on the own. So Colossians chapter 3, and uh, verses 1 through 4. In my uh, New International Version, the, the heading is Rules for Holy Living. Rules for Holy Living. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above. Where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Father, we pray a blessing upon these, this time, as we focus on these uh, scriptures, help us to understand what Paul was endeavouring to communicate to this church all those centuries ago. Yeah, how wonderful the Word of God is, old yet ever new. We pray it might speak into our hearts and lives also, all these centuries are. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Paul the Apostle concluded chapter 2 by saying that human tradition and superstitions have, I quote, an appearance of wisdom with the self-imposed worship, the false humility and the harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. So if all these things lack value, the question I pose is, well, what is valuable for restraining sensual indulgence? All these petty rules and regulations that the Apostle Paul is alluding to might seem very clever, might seem very fantastic in themselves, but they lack value, he says. They promise to help us spiritually, but actually they do nothing to tame the wild beast of lust and sinfulness that lies within the human heart. Friends, if it were not for the restraining grace of God, there is nothing that you and I could not do. Our hearts, as John Calvin put it, are a factory of idols. In the human heart there is the potential for great wickedness. No one, not one of us, is exempt from such wickedness. The Apostle Paul wrote to the Romans in chapter 3 verse 23 that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are not one of us exempt from wretched wickedness. In Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 it says, The heart, human heart, is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? 
Consequently, ascetic practices, taboos and rituals, and anything else that people use instead of Christ, actually do nothing to deal with the problem of the heart. Our hearts can only be changed, only transformed by the renewing power of the Holy Spirit, by of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. And so understanding something of the nature of our heart problem, Paul begins chapter 3 with an exhortation. He says, in effect, my paraphrase, understanding that all this human wisdom, all this self-imposed worship, all this false humility, he says, understanding this lacks value in the restraint of sensual indulgence, he says, therefore, he says, he all exhorts us, actually, that's the meaning of the text, he exhorts us, therefore, set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Paul, it seems clear to me, is encouraging us to change our perspectives. So that we seek those things that are from above. Paul is clear about what he means by above here, doesn't he? For he refers, I believe, very definitely to the throne of God. He speaks about where Christ is seated, the right hand of God. And so he's clearly referring to the throne of the Almighty. He's referring to heaven itself. Where God is, there is heaven. Heaven is where God is. And so Paul is clear as to what he's referring to. Set your hearts on heaven. In effect. Now this prompts another question. How does one do that? How does one set one's heart on heaven? Well, Paul's way ahead of us, is he not? Because rather helpfully, the beginning of chapter 2, he tells us. Uh, the thing about the Apostle Paul is that he was a strategic thinker, wasn't he? Uh, he didn't think in isolation. He didn't think in, in, in just merely hypothetical ways. He was strategic. And when he poses one with an exhortation or with, with a challenge, he, he tells us, oh, how might that challenge be met? How do we set our hearts on, on heaven where God is? He says, well, he offers the opposite strategy, I believe. Rather helpfully, verse 2, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Paul suggests that we should not become consumed, not become occupied, or preoccupied for that matter, as many of us do, with all the taboos, all the superstitions, rituals and traditions of this world, and of, of, of the worship of this world. These things that are threatening, well, it was, they were certainly threatening the existence of the Colossian church, first century AD, but they're threatening our church today. Rather, we must endeavour to adjust our focus so that we're no longer looking, no longer engaged, if you like, with the things of this world, because these things are temporal in nature. 
He says, adjust your focus so that you're looking towards, you're engaging with the things of heaven. Those things that are eternal in nature. Remember he wrote to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 4.18. We fix our eyes, not upon what is seen, but upon what is unseen. Now this is one of those Pauline paradoxes, isn't it? <laughs> because it doesn't make any human logical sense. Set your mind on what you can't set your eyes on what you can't see. Do how do you do that, Paul? Set your eyes, fix your eyes upon what you can't see. Well, it's it's a it's a it's a shift of perspective. And he's saying, don't get occupied, preoccupied with what you see with the naked eye. But what is what you see with the, the the eye of faith, that which is eternal, and so he's shifting the Christian's perspective from earthly things that can consume us if we're not careful to eternal things. Now, I was thinking about this today. Arguably, the Apostle Paul should not need to write to Christians about such things. One would think that Christians, having tasted for themselves and found indeed that the law is good, one would think that they would have no desire to regress, if you like, back to the old ways, back to the syncretistic practices. But the very fact that Paul is writing thus is suggesting that, well, he needed to write in, the, in this manner. What had happened? What had happened for these Christians who, who had found Christ for themselves? And all the fullness of the deity in Christ, who had tasted the wonders of this glorious gospel, what had happened for them to, to regress? Well, we can only speculate, perhaps, we do know that it wasn't easy for them. The, the context was very difficult. It wasn't easy to be a Christian in Colossae at this time. Uh, and maybe the world encroached upon them in such a way they regressed. I don't know. I'm speculating. We know something of that, don't we? The world does have the nasty habit of encroaching upon us. We go from Sunday to Sunday and the six days between the two, isn't there? It'd be great if we just lived, you know, Sunday, 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 Sunday all the time. It would be easy there, wouldn't it? But unfortunately, between the two Sundays, there are six other days. Uh, and inevitably, we're exposed to the world, the flesh and the devil. And, and it, it encroaches upon our souls, doesn't it? It seeks to, to snatch us of our joy, rob us of our peace, maybe cause us to falter in our faith. And so Paul writes thus, understanding that these Christians, though they tasted Christ, the wonders of the gospel, they regressed. Ah, how quickly professing Christians revert back to, to their old familiar ways. And so he writes in this manner, kind of exhorting the Christians, <laughs> but also with quite forceful language. Refocus, he says, 
refocus, gain a different perspective. So one is not consumed with what you see with the naked eye. And shift your focus heavenward. The successful Christian life, I'm convinced, is all about the right focus. Do we react to what we see with the naked eye? Or to what we see with the eye of faith? Mm, it's a challenge, isn't it? Instead of syncretism, Paul says Christians need to march to a different drum beat. They need to move to a different rhythm. He says in verse 3, notice, For you died, for you died. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. You died, he says. But clearly, they had not died physically, uh, at least, because he's writing to them. When Paul writes here, you died, he's referring to uh, a life choice. They had died to this world. They had died to their own selves. They had died to their own preferences, their own priorities. They had shifted their focus away from the world and all that the world offers. Paul says, you died. Now some might consider such a radical life choice as very, very risky indeed. Very dangerous. Very ambiguous. To, to die to the flesh and therefore live your life not by what you see with the naked eye, but with what you see with the eye of faith. How ambiguous is that? But Paul reassures them here, doesn't he? <laughs> that, that dying in this way was, was not risky, it's not dangerous, it's not ambiguous, because he says dying in this way means that their lives were now, notice the latter part of verse 3, hidden with Christ in God. Wow! Isn't that something? It speaks of divine security. It speaks of divine protection. This, friends, without doubt, is the best kind of protection you can get. I had a, an appointment this morning with my uh, insurance advisor. Life assurance and pensions and all that stuff, you know. And he was advising me on, on the best policies. This policy is good, he says, or that policy is very good. And, and this particular product at the moment you'll find particularly helpful. I thought, wow, that's great. But the best policy of all is this Pauline policy. Oh, if I don't, if I could only package and sell this. <laughs> Sell it. Give it away. <laughs> Can't even give it away, can we? Can't even give it away. This is the best life policy, life assurance of all. Because here, this life assurance policy is underwritten by God the Father through Christ the Son. He says, listen, when you have died to, to this life, it's not a risky choice. It's it's not ambiguous to do so, he says, because your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Hallelujah. 
Isn't that amazing? The psalmist captures the essence of this beautifully. He says in Psalm 91, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. He will cover you with his feathers. Under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. I'm a, uh, I was brought up with uh, Sankey's hymn book. Sankey's old hymn book. It kind of preceded uh, the redemption hymnal. In fact, what, a lot of what we've got redemption came out of Sankey's. Ostensibly put together by our North American brethren, but they've done a pretty good job, I think. And uh, a North American hymn writer, William Cushing, puts it beautifully in his hymn. Oh, safe to the rock that is higher than I. My soul in its conflicts and sorrows would fly. So sinful, so weary, thine, thine would I be. O oh, blessed rock of ages, I'm hiding in thee. Hiding in thee, hiding in thee. Thou blessed rock of ages, I'm hiding in thee. That's what Paul is speaking of here. He says, you died. But fret not, he says, because you so die to the world, to the flesh, to all your previous syncretistic practices and pagan ways, because you die, he says, your life is now hidden with Christ. How wonderfully reassuring is that? It's hidden with Christ in God. When a person shifts their focus away from this world, they are looking forward the world to come. Paul alludes to this in the next verse, verse 4. He says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Of course, Paul is writing eschatologically here. Remember that beautiful theological word that I love so much? Eschatos. And the Greek word meaning end times. He's referring to the end times. My friends, this word eschatology should be close to our hearts in these days. Because we are in the end times. Oh yeah. I believe scripture is clear. And I believe prophecies are being fulfilled at such a rate that we are in the end times. Jesus says, that we should discern the signs of the times. We none of us, of course, know not when he will come. For he himself doesn't know, only the Father who is in heaven. But he does uh, tell us we should be informed about the end times. And Paul is clearly, in verse 4 here, referring to the end times. When Christ, who is your life, I like that, who is your life, he is my life. You died, he says, but Christ is your life. Of course, he said to the Philippians, for me to live is Christ. To die is gain. So we have this, this kind of Pauline repetition about what our priorities ought to be. How our perceptives should change. How our focuses should shift. He says, Christ who is your life appears. Fascinating word, this appears. Uh, he's referring to uh, the blessed and glorious hope that resides within the child of God. He's referring to, to Jesus appearing. 
in Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 2.19, we have a Greek word there, parousia. Uh, uh, You'll, you'll know it because it's become synonymous with, with the, the return of Jesus. Parousia. In Thessalonians, it's translated, um, I, I, well, in the NIV at least, it's translated when he comes. So it's, it's the single word parousia is translated 1 Thessalonians 2.19. Uh, when Jesus, when he comes. It's referring to his coming. Uh, I believe it's referring to to what will be the rapture of the Christian church. For he himself, the Lord himself, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16, will come down from heaven with a loud command. Here's that expression, come down. His coming from heaven with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet call of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. But Christ prophesied himself concerning this occasion, didn't he? Because when he was ascending, into heaven, subsequent to his resurrection from the grave, he said to, to, to reassure the disciples, listen, fret not guys, as you have seen me go up from you into heaven, so shall I return from heaven in the clouds. And so this is what he's referring to in this verse 4. It seems to me, wherever you read the Apostle Paul's epistles, he can't help but, 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 but write eschatologically, can he? He's, he's so excited about it, isn't he? So should we be? Less so often, aren't we? I don't know why. But uh, Paul's so excited. When he comes, he says. After that, he says, uh, the trumpet call of God and, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and who are, who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. And that's what he's referring to in verse 4. Who, when, when, right, when, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Brethren, this shift of focus means the genuine child of God lives his or her life in the light of Jesus' return. This means living our here and now motivated by the there and then. And so to go back to the end of chapter 2, Paul says, listen guys, all of this stuff that you were saved from, you, you died from, all this stuff, this, this self-imposed worship, this, this false humility, this harsh treatment of the body, all this religiosity, all these rules and regulations, all this, brethren, he says, all this, doesn't have any value. Doesn't have any value whatsoever to help you live successfully the Christian life. But what does, he said, what does shift your perspective, shift your focus towards heaven? And as you do, you cannot help but then begin to anticipate the glorious Coming again of Jesus Christ. His glorious appearing. And the rapture of the Christian church. When you shift your focus, he's saying, when you shift your focus in this manner, these things will have benefit. It will benefit you in your Christian life. It will provide for you motivation to live the kind of Christian life that you should be living. 
most of you know that when Deb was 42 years of age, she suffered from chronic renal failure. And today, funnily enough, is, is World Kidney Day. <laughs> Immediately as a family, we were thrown into all kinds of turmoil. Deb was rushed into hospital and forced to go on to uh, hemodialysis immediately. This necessitated a significant life change for us as a family. I don't class myself as a carer, but we've had to adjust. What I have learned during these last years, what I have to keep learning, is simply this. That if I'm going to be a wise Christian, and make it through to the finished tape with honour, I actually only need two dates in my diary. I need to keep relearning this. My diary's full of dates. I love my diary. But lost without it. I love to plan ahead. I love to be strategic. But God says to me, my child, you only need two dates in this diary. I need a date of the here and there and then and a date of the here and now. The only two dates I need. The there and then and the here and now are the only two dates I need, the only two polarities, if you like, between which I need to move. As the old hymn writer put it, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. And I live my today based upon the heat, the there and then, the, my tomorrow. Don't I? I don't, I shouldn't live my today based upon what's scheduled in for next week. Because God knows I might not have next week. Huh? I shouldn't live my today based upon what I'm, what's scheduled for the, for the, for, for my diary in September. Because God knows I might not have September. I live my today based upon what I know. And that is Christ's coming again. So from the moment I got up this morning to the moment I go to bed tonight and everything that I do today is based upon the reality that I know and that is that Christ is coming again. So how does that reality, how does that fact shape what I do now? My great temptation in life you speak to my wife, she knows what I'm like, is wanting to start to cross bridges that I've not come to yet. <laughs> Actually, wanting to prepare for bridges that might not even exist. How strange. Many Christians spend lots of time preparing for what might never happen. That's not how we live our lives. <laughs> I need to learn the technique of setting my mind, my affections, my heart on the finishing line. Paul says, brothers, sisters in Colossae, this is how you live a successful life. You shift your perspective. And you live today based upon what you know for tomorrow. And that is Christ is coming again. When I was working in the civil service, 
along with some of my colleagues then in what was the Department of Employment, today of course Department of Work and Pensions. Um, we, as a, as a department, decided to, to run the Liverpool Half Marathon. So we, of course, set out uh, a training and preparation programme. Consequently, I would regularly go out running with, with my friend. I remember one occasion, uh, I was living in Rainhill at the time, and I went uh, on one of these runs in preparation for the half marathon with my friend, who in his wisdom on this particular occasion decided that we would take a different route. Well, it turned out to be the worst run of my life. Because it became very quickly clear that my friend wasn't sure where he was going. <laughs> and after about seven or eight miles, it was clear that we were absolutely, totally and utterly lost. And so we ran, and we ran, and we ran, and we ran. And to this day, I consider it to be the worst run of my life, not because of the distance we ran, I may have run further before, but because... I didn't know where the finishing line was. You see, not knowing where the finishing line was caused a problem for me, the runner. Because I didn't know how to pace myself. I didn't know how to run myself. Do you know what I mean? It caused a problem. And not knowing where the finishing line was created a significant problem. We were going through the motions, so to speak, really crying help to each other. Now then, what sets the pace for us in this world today? What sets the pace for us? It's the next world, isn't it? Too many Christians are running this course, this life, and their eyes not fixed on the finishing line. So they're mispacing it, they're mistiming it, they're misunderstanding it. They're getting all kinds of things wrong. It's being misplanned because they're running this course not knowing when the finishing line, not thinking about when the finishing line is. In my today, I need to remember my tomorrow. I'm going to be with Christ. I will stand before Him. I'll give an account of my life and my time on earth to Him. I have to run the here and now understanding that reality. And so really, to summarize these verses, this context, Paul is saying, brethren, the Christian changes their perspective so that they live this life in the shadow of the life to come. And in so doing, you get your priorities right, you get your pace right, you get your motivations right. You get everything right. <laughs> and it's logical, isn't it? Because the only thing we can guarantee is the life to come. It's the only thing we can guarantee. <laughs> There's protection, surely, in the here and now, but it's the life to come. And so we live the here and now, says the Apostle Paul, based on the reality. He says that Christ who is your life, when he appears, he will, you, will also, you will also appear with him in glory.
Understanding that, embracing that, we're talking about a shift in perspective, a shift in focus, a change of direction. Next time, fortnight's time, it will be, we're looking at a shift in standards, a new, new standards. And we'll move on into chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. That's right. Father, we thank you for these scriptures and for the lessons they present us, the challenges they present. Father, forgive us. Forgive me, your servant, so often. I'm planning to cross bridges I haven't met yet. <laughs> I might never meet. I'm sorry, Father. Help me to live this day in the light of that day, <laughs> your glorious return. And therefore get my perspectives, my timing, my pacing, my motivations, my priorities, them all right. <laughs> and I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.